Welcome to the Teach Me Lit podcast. I'm Sophie Tuvey and I love talking about books and helping you to revise for English literature and go deeper in the texts you're studying. North and South, chapters 46 to 52. This is the final section of the novel. And as I mentioned before, we have this circular structure where we've kind of returned exactly to where Margaret was at the beginning. Um, She's staying in Harley Street in London with her relatives, Aunt Shaw and Cousin Edith. And um, Mr Bell decides to take Margaret back to Helston for a visit. Now, what's really important in this chapter, it's called Once and Now. The title implies that there's been a change. Uh, Once Helston was the home of Margaret, her idealised place of childhood and the place where her parents were, the place where she was happiest, perhaps. Um, But the term and now suggests that everything's different. And that's exactly what Margaret feels. Um, As they journey on the train, she sees the old south country towns and hamlets sleeping in the warm light of the pure sun, so different to the cold slates of the north. There were few people about at the stations. It almost seemed as if they were too lazily content to wish to travel. None of the bustle and stir. And so Margaret's seeing the same sights that she's always known, But now that she's lived in the north, she sees them with different eyes. She does see the slower pace, the laziness of those who are wealthy, in a way that she wouldn't have even noticed before. The the sad contrast for Margaret is that obviously before, when she was at Helston, she was a child with a mother and a father and a brother. And now through all these circumstances, she's been left alone. Frederick, there's pretty much no hope of Frederick coming back. Um, He settled in Spain and now her parents have left her. And when they arrive in Helston and they go to the inn where they're going to stay overnight, um, the woman who runs the inn immediately says, how's the vicar? Um, And so, of course, there's an instant reminder for Margaret of her loss. Um, And so there's this kind of cloying grief and sadness in this visit from the beginning to the end. The landlady of the inn hints that the new vicar and his wife have really changed things a lot and not necessarily for the better since the Hales went. She says, I should call it turning things upside down for very little purpose. The new vicar is a teetotaler. They both talk so much, both at a time, they knock one down as it were. Margaret feels like she's even older as she looks at the decay of different places and um, she goes back to the place where Henry Lennox proposed and of course she feels that she's learnt so much since then and she's changed so much since then, she feels like a completely different person. Now what I think is really interesting is that when she visits um someone she knows and asks about someone else um the woman says that she stole her cat and burnt it in some kind of act of witchcraft and that kind of shocking ignorance um a city really undercuts the old idealism that maybe margaret's had about the south um bell comments on the practical paganism um 
And then when they meet the vicar's wife at the school and she's very patronising towards them um, and she awkwardly presumes that Belle is Margaret's father um, and even corrects Margaret when she talks about um, A being an indefinite article to the children. So where Hale couldn't follow the principles of the church, um, the vicar's wife is overly tied to the letter of the book which she has to teach the children to learn by rope for example and so when she tells Margaret about all the alterations they've made to the house including building a huge nursery um, it, it sort of shows that the, these people are quite brash unfeeling and quite tactless um, I, I love the way that it describes the vicar keeping his eye on the road from um uh, to see if anyone's going to the beer house and then he can kind of accost them on their way. So the two of them are quite meddling people. Uh, and Bell comments on the exaltation in their superior sense that he notices in the words that they speak. So Margaret reflects that this visit to Helston had not been all, had not been exactly what she had expected. There was change everywhere. And yet we know the greatest change is in her, herself. Now, she does confess to Mr Bell about lying to save Frederick. Um, she really wants to ask Bell to speak to um, Thornton on her behalf. Margaret is really keen to unburden her conscience and tell Mr Bell about what she's done and then hopefully get him to explain to Thornton when he next goes to Milton. So she explains um, what she did and, I mean, he supports Margaret. He says, you know, you forgot yourself in thought for another. Um, but Margaret persists that she knows that she was wrong. She says, the instinctive want of faith and clutching at a sin to keep myself from sinking no how could I um, and I think it's it's really interesting that Margaret can identify with her father in this that she feels like following her own conscience is of prime importance regardless of what others say to absolve her so regardless of Mr Bell's attitude of you know you did the right thing Margaret persists that what her conscience tells her is what she must do. And so she says, what other people may think of the rightness or wrongness is nothing in comparison to my own deep knowledge, my innate conviction that it was wrong. And here I think there is that parallel with her father that even though everybody else thought he should just overcome his doubts and sign the paper and get on with being the vicar, he in his conscience felt that he couldn't do it. Um, and in following his conscience, he was doing the right thing. Um, and I think here we can see um, that, that sense of Margaret following in his footsteps. Um, now, she feels this sense of profound change and instability and tiredness. She's gone through so many changes, perplexity and disappointment. Um, and she resolves that, you know, she's told Belle now about her wrongdoing. She's hoping that he's going to tell Thornton, but she's going to have to 
to carry on with her life and she's aware that she herself is going to change and she says and I too change perpetually and that growth in self-awareness is the classic arc of a building's romance you know she's um, more self-aware now than she was before so we can see that there's still these obstacles between Thornton and Margaret but we can also see that the way is is slowly being paved for them to come back together because we are seeing that Margaret is no longer idealising the South anymore and in fact she's missing the North, she's missing the way of life and she's seeing through the things which maybe she didn't see through um, before. Now Edith has um, a real self-absorption and when um, Margaret thinks about possibly going to visit Frederick, Edith just cries to try and get her not to go um it says um having nothing else particular to do she cried and said she knew she cared much more for margaret than margaret did for her edith lacks empathy because of her self-absorption um and i think it's interesting to continually parallel edith's want of character um, and her kind of weak emotional manipulation with that of Fanny Thornton. And to me, they, they seem very similar in their kind of weakness in the novel. Henry Lennox continues to help Margaret and she finds him colder and she sees his contempt for his brother and sister-in-law because Captain Lennox and Edith are both lacking in any intellectual ability. Um, he seems to consider their lives as frivolous and purposeless, which indeed Margaret herself does agree with. Um, but where she sees him as keen-sighted, far-seeing, intelligent, sarcastic and proud, she perceives that they've drifted strangely apart, even though they may agree on many things. Um, she has a, a moral rightness to her that he does not and so she can never really see Henry Lennox as a feasible partner for her um, as a marriage partner. Now um, the dinner parties which she she goes through um, really compound her sense of dissatisfaction um, and I think it's really interesting that that she is amidst all this wealth and luxury and all she can notice is how um, the people squandered their capabilities of appreciation into a mere flow of appropriate words. Um, and, he dis and she dislikes the way that people say things they don't mean or support ideas they know to be wrong, even in jest. Um, not taking himself seriously. There's that lack of straightforward honesty, which obviously she's found in Thornton, that now she sees the lack of in all these gentlemanly societies and, and, and higher um, social status. Um, now, it's interesting that she declares at this point in the novel, I shall never marry. And she even goes as far as to say to Edith that there's a shade or two of coarseness in the way that she talks about the men who will visit here next year for Margaret's sake. Um, and so she's even beginning to see the flaws in her own beloved cousin. Um, and when the news of Mr Bell's death um, arrives, Edith is sobbing and it was some time before she could even think about Margaret just because she was upset that someone she'd invited to dinner wouldn't be able to attend.
Now, Margaret at this point begins to assert her right to independence of action. She begins to separate herself from her aunt and cousin and begins to think, well, now Belle is gone. She's now inheriting all of his wealth. She needs to really take more responsibility and direction of her life. And I think it's interesting that Margaret reflects on when she was a child promising to herself to live as brave and noble a life as any heroine she had ever read or heard of in romance. Trusting to herself, she had fallen. She stood face to face at last with her sin. She prayed that she might have strength to speak and act the truth forevermore. So she makes this kind of moral resolution that with her money, with her power, she's going to make a difference in the world. She is going to be brave. She's going to be bold. She's going to be noble. She's going to be, in short, everything that Edith is not, um, lying on the couch, throwing fits of tears and can't even discipline her own child. Now, what's also interesting is at the news of Belle's death, it doesn't take Edith long to ask the question, is not Margaret the heiress? Instantly, Edith thinks immediately of money, social position, um, all of these things, which to Margaret, those things only matter in as much as they give her the ability to help others. Um, and at this point, uh, Henry Lennox has really... Um, got his sights set firmly upon marrying her. And it says, the clever and ambitious man bent all his powers to gaining Margaret. He was fully aware of the rise which it would immediately enable him, the poor barrister, to take. And so we see that even Henry Lennox, who originally offered for her hand when she wasn't wealthy, sees the advantage in marrying her and pushes forward. Again, another reason why he isn't right for her. Now, Margaret is ashamed to remember that she had expressed her own disdain for Milton before. Um, and when she um, thinks of the energy, power, indomitable courage of the people of Milton, um, she, that is something that makes her come alive. And Henry Lennox himself notices those things when he has to visit Milton on behalf of Margaret because he is basically functioning as a kind of uh, lawyer for her, an executor, an agent. Um, and so Margaret then took her life into her own hands. She herself must one day answer for her own life. How much was to be utterly merged in obedience to authority? How much might be set apart for freedom in working? Which Gaskell says is that most difficult problem for women. And so we're reminded of the position of Margaret as a single woman. Um, she wouldn't ordinarily have much freedom to go about the world making her own choices. But that's what she wants to do. And Edith pleads with her three times, don't be strong-minded. Um, and Margaret quips, well, with Sholto playing with the fire and the baby crying, you'll begin to wish for a strong-minded woman equal to any emergency. Now, um, it gives us a, a change here uh, as they, it, chapter 50 talks about Milton and uh, says, Meanwhile at Milton, the chimney smoked, the ceaseless roar and mighty beat and dizzying whirl of machinery struggled and strove perpetually. Um, and it that Gaskell describes the men in the deep selfishness of competition and um, the essence of capitalism itself. Now, she comments on the immense speculations that had come to light in making a bad end in America. 
and talks about Thornton's temptation because Thornton has now come into difficulty. He's spent a lot of money on equipment. He's, because of the strike, failed to fulfill certain big orders and he is hard-pressed, it says, at the moment for cash. Um, And he believes that commerce gives power to every brave, honest and persevering man. Um, He wants to be the head of a firm that should be known for generations in his own town, his own factory, amongst his own people. And being with Higgins um, has helped him realise that we have all of us one human heart. Um, And so he wants to stay where he is. He wants to uh, keep on doing what he's been doing. But now he's forced to really grapple with the financial implications of this. Um, And I think Gaskell shows the growth in his character that um, two men like himself and Higgins living by the same trade, working in their different ways at the same object, looking so strangely different away. Uh, And now they look upon each other with far more charity and sympathy and bear with each other more patiently and kindly. Um, And I love the little um, slight anecdote that when there was some trouble with a piece of um, work that wasn't finished properly, Higgins stayed after hours with another man to get the neglected piece of work done, unbeknownst to Thornton. Such was the loyalty that Higgins was willing to show for him. Now, Higgins asked Thornton about Miss Margaret and he comments, she's my landlord now. And suddenly Higgins begins to twig what Thornton really feels for her. And he asks, is the young gentleman cleared, referring to Frederick? And it's in this conversation that the final realisation falls to Thornton that the man he saw Margaret with was her brother. And he he repeats, it was her brother. And at that moment, um, he realises that he was mistaken in believing that she was out after dark with a lover. And then um, it says his agent had largely trusted a house in the American trade, which went down along with several others just at this time, like a pack of cards. And so Thornton finds himself at rock bottom. He's worked so hard to build himself up to get where he is. And now he's facing losing everything. He tells his mother that he's been offered a speculation full of risk. Um, If he wins, no one will ever know the problems he was in. But if he if it fails, um, he would not be able to pay everyone. And he says, my peace of conscience would be gone. And so even though his mother, his own mother, who saw her husband ruined by speculation, his own mother encourages him to just do it. And he refuses. Um, He says to run the risk of ruining many for my own paltry aggrandizement. Mother, I have decided. Um. And he, he's determined that he will always endeavour to do right, making great blunders, then trying to be brave in setting to afresh. So we're seeing the similarities here with Margaret and Thornton, both of them making decisions on matter of conscience. Conscience being the key 
thing, the key aspect perhaps that Gaskell believes of true religion, true faith. A person must do what they feel in the very core of their heart is the right thing to do. And he doesn't want to touch this risky speculation. And even when his mother sort of questions where justice is, why is it that her son, a hard-working man, is brought so low and other men who don't do any work seem to be to raise so high? And he reminds her, who has sent me my lot in life, both of good and of evil? And those words are kind of from the Bible, from the, the book of Job, who also is a character who loses a lot of money and never loses his faith in God. And so we're seeing Thornton's true faith shining through in the, these adverse circumstances, um, just as we have done with Margaret. Margaret has never doubted her faith. Um, and so Fanny's husband was vexed at Thornton's refusal to take any share in the speculation which he'd offered to him. This is Watson, Fanny's husband. And so he, Thornton knows he had to give up the, the business. Um, and so... Um, he he knows that there are other men like Hamper um, who are wholly uneducated as regarded any other responsibility than that of getting money um, will just be willing to take over and, and do what they will with his business. And it says that Thornton waited and stood on one side with profound humility as the news swept through the exchange of the enormous fortune which his brother-in-law had made by his daring speculation. And so the whole world holds up Watson, who we know is pretty foolish, to be honest, as being amazing. He's risen to the top. He's made an enormous fortune. John could have made that if he had taken the risk, but his conscience would not allow it. And he stands humbly back and accepts his own um, you know, end of his own business, where his brother-in-law has succeeded. But I think there's a contrast here of the worldly wisdom, um, the get-rich-quick mentality, and the truth and importance of following your own conscience. And I think Gaskell leaves us in no doubt that John Thornton has the moral victory because he didn't take the risk. Now, what I love about this point is um, that Gaskell then brings Thornton to London um, and back into Margaret's circle and Lennox, Henry Lennox himself invites Thornton to their dinner where they have another businessman, Mr Colthurst, there as well. Um, and at this point, Edith is panicking because it will spoil her numbers that there is an extra person. Um, and um, she, she says to Margaret, I asked him, this is Lennox now, if he was a man one would be ashamed of. So as in, you know, you've invited this man Thornton, I don't even know him, will he, will he make us embarrassed? Um, and she makes that comment, um, I suppose he's able to sound his H's. Oh, he's failed. He's very badly off, um, although he's a very respectable man. And so... Um, Margaret finds out about Thornton's new situation and has to face him round this dinner table um, with her family, knowing his situation has changed so dramatically. And it's considerably more than a year since they've last seen each other. 
Um, and when she sees him, she comments his face looked older and careworn with a sense of inherent dignity and manly strength. And we can see that she's still so fond of him as she looks at him and she now sees all this character, this depth of character that she never saw before. And around the dinner table, he, when he speaks, everyone respects him and she's seeing um, just how much of a true gentleman that he is. Um, and I love that moment at the dinner table where their eyes meet um, as if he's sort of looking for her sympathy or approval and then he becomes grave and anxious once more. Henry Lennox says to Margaret, you've no idea what an agreeable, sensible fellow this tenant of yours is. Um, and obviously the irony is that Henry Lennox, Thornton's main rival, is saying this. Um, and he talks, Thornton talks openly at the table about his dialogue with Higgins and the other men. And he says the advantages were mutual. We were both unconsciously and consciously teaching each other. And Henry Lennox intervenes because he doesn't want to embarrass Thornton by Thornton having to reveal his current situation. But Thornton deliberately and honestly, openly confesses his fail, failed situation. He says, I've been unsuccessful in business and I've had to give up my position as a master. Um, and I think Margaret admires that honesty which he brings to the table, even though he could have quite easily let the conversation drift on when Henry Lennox intervened. Um, he also talks about the importance of bringing the individuals of the different classes into actual personal contact and that when the men saw the intense mental labour behind decisions the masters made and when the masters start involving them so they bear a part in formation of plans then Thornton concludes we should understand each other better and I'll venture to say we should like each other more and I think that also reflects his relationship with Margaret that as they've communicated more they've understood more where each other has come from then they've liked each other more and more. He also tells Margaret that he had um, a, a load of men sign a paper that Higgins has taken round stating they wish to work for him and he sort of takes that to Margaret for her approval and mentions that before her. Um, so Margaret, off the back of this dinner, makes a massive decision and it's a decision which brings about finally the reconciliation of her and Thornton. She asks Lennox to sort out the business side and then calls Thornton uh, for a meeting and Lennox realises um, that uh, her affections lie elsewhere because when Edith drops some very unsubtle hints he says give up thinking about it Miss Hale would not have me and I shall not ask her. Um, now um, when she is left with Mr Thornton to give him this business proposition that she's come up with um, Thornton comments on being thrown back to the starting point and I think that's interesting that in this conversation they're having where they're in very different positions now. He is in a position of poverty. She is in a position of wealth. He is in London, in the south, in her territory. Um, they're not in the north anymore. Um, they are, in a sense, both of them at the beginning again, and they're starting their relationship afresh. Um, and um, Thornton says, those who are happy and successful themselves are too apt to make light of the misfortunes of others, commenting on Lennox's blasé attitude. 
and then Margaret gives him this business proposition. If you would take some money of mine, £18,057, you could pay me a much better interest and might go on working Marlborough Mills. And offering him this part of her fortune um, as a as a business proposition, so that he can save the mill and and keep going, he at last realizes the depth of her love for him. Um, and I I love this moment where um, he just says, his voice trembling with tender passion, he just says, Margaret. Um, and then she just drops her forehead down on her hands and he says again, Margaret. And then he kneels by her side and says, if you do not speak, I shall claim you as my own in some strange, presumptuous way. Uh, send me away at once if I must go, Margaret. At that third call, she turned her face, still covered with her small white hands towards him and laid it on his shoulder. And I just love the profoundness of that moment that she's, in a sense, by giving him this very bold business proposition, she's laid everything on the table before him and he realises that she loves him still and he um, calls her name and in doing so he is, you know, offering himself to her. And And I love that moment, you know, I shall claim you as my own, that sense of... Um, the fact that she doesn't refuse him this time, he knows that her feelings have changed. And he claps her close and then she says, Oh, Mr Thornton, I am not good enough. And I just love the fact that here we see two people who've gone on a journey. They've become very deeply humbled. This is such a contrast to the first proposal where both of them were proud people proud of who they were what they thought was right what they thought was wrong and now all of that has been stripped back through very painful situations but they are left to be honest with one another and to be real um and she says i remember how wrongly i spoke to you and then he reveals that he has some rose petals from helston and he'd actually gone down to see helston um, even when he had no hope of ever seeing Margaret again, he'd gone down and collected the roses and kept the petals as a sign of his love for her. And so we're seeing that in this modern manufacturing self-made man, there is that traditional romantic core that he believes in loving long and being faithful to the end. Um, and I also love the the way that Gaskell ends their conversation um, where she, Margaret says, how shall I ever tell Aunt Shaw? Um, and then Thornton says her first excla- exclamation will be, that man. Hush, said Margaret, or I shall try and show you your mother's indignant tones as she says, that woman. And I think in that humorous ending, we, we're reminded of the opposition that they face from um, this older generation. The older generation aren't sure of the London set of people, um, of the South. Um, Mrs Thornton, who didn't want John to marry a penniless girl, well, that's ironic now that he's the one who's penniless. Um, the opposition of, of the clashes they've had between North and South, their backgrounds. Finally, we've, we're seeing reconciliation between John and Margaret and hope for the future with masses of men working together side by side. And so I think this is a, 
a brilliant ending because we've come full circle through the different settings of the novel, London, Halston, Milton. And we we started with um, Edith's engagement and marriage to Captain Lennox and we're ending it with the engagement of John and Margaret. And I think Gaskell gives us that hope that the future can change and be better. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please hit subscribe and share it with a friend. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Teach Me Lit. I'm always open to requests, so if you want me to talk about a text you're studying, get in touch. Thank you for listening. See you next time on the Teach Me Lit podcast.